Welcome to another edition of Forward Guidance. I'm joined by Joseph Wang uh, at FedGuy.com, as well as Martin Peltier, Senior Portfolio Manager at Wellington Altus Private Council. Gentlemen, welcome. Great to have you here. Great to be here. It's a pleasure to be here, Jack. And it's great to, to see you again, Martin. Uh, for, you, for those of you who don't know, Martin has decades of experience, very, very good asset manager, very good track record, and he's also an influential voice in the Canadian financial community. He writes a column at Financial Post, and uh, he's been doing that for decades. So we definitely want to hear what he has to say. De- decades, certainly uh, I need a little bit more gray hair. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. So Martin, yeah, I, I want to ask you, what was it like to invest last year at a time when uh, you know central banks were, were raising interest rates? A lot of my viewers will be familiar with the experience, oh, is the Fed going to do 25, oh, no, 50, 75, but at actually managing you know, other people's money, that classic OPM uh, uh, phrase, what are the things that people might be missing if they're just sort of you know, reading the Wall Street Journal and not actually uh, you know, managing, managing money? Well, uh, there seems to be a little bit of a um, comparative bias. So what I mean by that is um, a lot of managers, when their markets are, are correcting, you know, they'll relay on that, hey, you know, it, it's just the market dynamics and uh, we have to participate with it, unfortunately. And so just buy and hold and, and write it out seemed to be the, the pervasive advice. Whereas you know, we're active risk managers. These are the years that um, we shine and people really don't give credit as to the value of downside protection. There's something called risk parity. And so um, if you could prevent losses, um, it goes a long ways to uh, achieving your objectives for as, a, as, a, as an investor. And so like if you lose 50%, you got to double your money to get it back. And we seem to lose sight of that because everyone was so focused on, on the huge gains in, in 2021, um, especially in the long duration segments of the market, which gave back a lot of those, or if not all of those returns last year. And so it was a year that we worked really hard, um, but we protected almost all of the market downside, even for uh, the traditional 60-40 investor. How were you weighing the the risks in, in 2022? What what were the what was the risk in 2022? Well, the the risk was duration risk, and and so many people missed that. Um, if you asked any portfolio manager, and you know, I did uh, ask some fellow fund managers what the and, and very well known fund managers what the duration exposure was on the equity side. You know, the look I got back was, <laughs> was quite shocking. They didn't know it wasn't being measured. Um, and the reason why is we had a decade of, of, of managers being rewarded for extending the duration exposure, right? And, and rightly so. I mean, we were in a low interest rate environment. Uh, you had low, uh, un, uh, low unemployment. You had the perfect sweet spot of, of a scenario for these investors. And then you had asset inflation uh, caused by these low rates. And, and so um, they were rewarded for taking on that equity duration. When they whether they realized it or not, and um, they were being told, and maybe they were telling themselves that as well that inflation was transitory, uh, just as the Fed was, and it wasn't. And they got hammered last year, um, both on the fixed income side for the balanced investors um, and on the equity side. And you can see that you can pull up the TLT, for example, uh, 20 year treasuries, or pull up the triple Q. 
pull up those, both of those charts over the last year and overlap them. And you'll see that they mirror itself, mirror themselves perfectly with little gaps where the equity duration uh, speculators are, are keep trying to, to, to call a Fed pivot where the bond investors are saying, ah, we're not there yet. And, uh, and so we have these, these, head, these uh, head fakes that we've seen. And so I, I think there's that mentality. And, and then now we're going back to the mentality that, um, as, as I've heard, the immaculate disinflation um, by Bob out there and, and, uh, and, and, and talking about how we're going back the way it was and reloading those duration bets. Right. Joseph, could you provide a definition for our audience of duration, which, which has a very rigid definition for bonds? And then could you apply it to equities where I, I think it's uh, intuitively it makes sense to apply it to equities, but I know it's, it's quite hard to apply it, you know, sort of mathematically uh, um, to equities. And uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, would you agree with Martin that duration was uh, uh, the main, main risk uh, of 2022? And does it remain a risk as you see it? Yeah. So that's a good point. So Duration is basically interest rate risk. So let's say how much uh, how much does your portfolio change with a one percent shift in one percent change in interest rates? So um, as a rough estimate, your duration risk is in proportion to the size of your coupon and the uh, the tenure of your of your assets. So if you have something that's maturing in say thirty years with a very small coupon, then that asset is is very sensitive to changes in interest rates and small changes in interest rates can make that asset decline a lot in value. Uh, in fact, if you if you think of, if you look at, say, the 30-year U.S. Treasuries, you know, it, it declined a lot during the past uh, past year, basically giving you equity-like performance, even though supposedly it's a very safe asset, uh, U.S. Treasury. So for, for bonds, even though there's no credit risk, you have a lot of duration risk. And when people look at equities, they sometimes think of, equities that have um, cash flows that are far out into the future to be similar to um, bonds, uh, long duration bonds, because you don't get like a 30 year bond, you don't get your money back in, let's say, a, a stock that doesn't make money until far into the future. So in a sense, the cash flow profile for, say, a tech company that makes no money today, but you imagine it to make a lot of money sometime 20, 30 years from now, uh, the cash flow profile could be very similar to, uh, to a long dated U.S. Treasury. And so if you think, if you use that framework to look at these equities, well, usually they're tech equities, then you can think of them as moving the same way as fixed income, long data fixed income does. And so last year, when you saw the U.S. Treasury market, you know, suffer significant drawdowns, you also saw these tech stocks also take a big beating. And, you know, I, I don't actually know if that it makes sense to think of equities, uh, long, uh, say tech equities or money losing tech equities that way. But that's how the market has kind of uh, agreed to think of them. I think going forward, uh, I agree completely that that there's there's still interest rate risk. You know, one of the things that that uh, that I've noticed is that the market always thinks that the future looks like the past. So as Martin was suggesting, all, many people are thinking that we're just go back to the low interest rate world that we had um, before before COVID. So they're loading up on bonds, they're loading up on tech equities and so forth. But sometimes the future does not look like the past. Now, usually if you look throughout history, if you have that framework, that, that simple framework where the future looks like the past, for the most part, you, you'll be correct because the world really doesn't change that much. But at turning points, though, you get caught off guard pretty significantly. And we saw that after the GFC, for example. After the GFC, 
the market kept thinking that we would go back to hiking rates as we did before the GFC, but we didn't. And so the market was wrong for a long time. And today the market thinks that, you know, the post-COVID world looks like the pre-COVID world. So we'll go back to cutting rates and you got to buy tech, you got to buy um, bonds and so forth. And, you know, if we have a structural shift, it looks like the market and everyone who, who thinks that way is going to be wrong-footed again. So the market is really not good at predicting the future. Business models and companies who thrived at a period when interest rates were zero, that now that interest rates are you know between 4 and 5%, it, the, the math just doesn't work anymore. Can you, can you describe what types of companies those, those are? And you know, Joseph said tech companies, growth companies, but I'd love a little more, more color. Well, the best way is to look who's actually laying off staff and where the layoffs are coming from in this environment. And, and so, you know, you had a situation where um, you threw out discounted cash flow analysis out the window um, because, it, I mean, when you had 0% interest rates, I mean, the, the numbers were huge. And now they're being asked to deliver cash up front instead of at some promised date, whether it's 10 years or 15 years or some big growth. So the only way they can do that is by cutting staff. And so look at the layoffs. Just pull up the charts and you can see most of those are within the tech space, even within the FANG space. Um, and, and so, but you have an S&P index that, you have five companies that are 25% of the earnings of the entire index. And so, um, you know, there's some important takeaways. If you're a passive investor, we've been told that, you know, just go passive and you're going to be okay. Well, um, well, if you're passive in the S&P 500, you've got five companies that are 18% or 19% of the index, which is as high as it was back in the tech bubble. And, uh, and, and so you've got a high concentration to, um, to to those kinds of companies that are, as Joseph explained, uh, high growth, uh, long dated cash flow, and now they're trying to front end load that cash flow through through layoffs. And I think it's very important to be cognizant of that and uh, and what you own. So, Martin, most of our guests are um, U.S. based, but you know you are based in Canada and specifically in Alberta. What are things looking like in Canada right now? That looking at, at Canada as a whole, um, it's a really good place to be. I think Alberta's uh, very much an inflation protected area um, within North America or even globally. And the reason being is because of our resource exposure. And resources are an excellent hedge. Uh, for every uh, 1% gain in inflation, uh, oil prices uh, and, and, and oil energy related prices will move up 8 to 9%. And so you, you've got a built-in hedge there. And so that's that's working out really well. Now, from a Canadian perspective, a lot of, because of the low rates, um, investors have, have gone into real estate, whereas in the U.S. it went into technology. They've been exiting that trade, with the exception of Alberta, actually. We're seeing, um, uh, I've been to a couple of open houses, for example, packed with people. Houses are selling at or above a list. People are feeling really confident um, that the Bank of Canada is going to pause, like they potentially indicated towards, depending on your interpretation. And then you've got energy as well. So we're a little bit of, I have to be careful because we're a little bit of a, in, in a pocket safety pocket zone here in, in Alberta. I have a question, but so for, for Canada, when you, for the asset management industry in Canada, do you, is it mostly like when you guys invest in equities, is it often in U.S. stocks? Because I know Canada, of course, has its own stock market and so forth, but it's also right next to the U.S. 
Now, yeah. for people based in the U.S., we basically just think about the S&P and what's what's here. But how does how do things look from the Canadian perspective? Is it just very common to also invest in stuff like the S&P 500 and U.S.-based companies? Or is there kind of a preference for things that are listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange? So Canada as a whole, it's only 2% of global GDP. I think California is, is similar in size, maybe a little bit bigger um, to all of Canada. Um, and so we tend to think we're bigger than we are. Well, we are big, but from a landmass perspective, but not from a population side. Um, but looking at a, at a GDP uh, component, it isn't that big, but it is significantly larger in Canadian portfolios. But that has been changing over the last decade because the top asset managers, as you know, performance sells and the top performing asset managers were those heavily weighted towards the U.S., and weighted towards uh, uh, U.S. tech, for example, and very small weight into resources. We saw a structural shift um, in, in, in the market in 2008 with quantitative easing coming in post that. Um, and then 2014 was kind of a big death knell for energy with uh, um, OPEC targeting uh, a price war against U.S. shale producers, which got Canada caught up in that as well, too. And so if you had a, a strong weighting to the TSX, which is, has a, a larger weighting towards energy, uh, you underperformed significantly. Um, and then you had the U.S. dollar appreciation against the Canadian dollar. So don't forget, I mean, we were at par. Actually, we were above par for, for, for some time. And, uh, and, and so you, you add that into the mix. Um, it resulted in significant underperformance. And so there was a big hurting towards uh, performance chasing and, and the S&P. And now we're wondering, you know, if that's going to continue to be the case or we go back to where it was post the burst, the bu bursting of the tech bubble when the TSX outperformed the S&P, um, not only just from an absolute basis, but also from the currency basis with the Canadian dollar rallying. So, for example, if you were a Canadian fund manager and last year you bought uh, into the S&P 500, you, you would have not done well, but you would have actually made money on the uh, appreciation of the dollar if you didn't hedge your currency. Yeah. How big does um, these FX uh, impacts, uh, I guess, shape your decision to invest in the U.S. or, or is it usually on an FX hedge basis? Um, yeah, so we, we do hedge. We'll look at, um, so for example, um, our S&P exposure, our U.S. equity exposure, more recently we've been doing CAD hedged um, because we think the Canadian dollar will hold up well um, compared to the U.S. dollar, and and so we want to uh, play that factor that into the equation. Um, if we're going to head into a deep, deep recession, as some of the bears are saying, then you probably want to have more of that U.S. dollar exposure than the than the Canadian equity exposure, Canadian dollar exposure. But we don't see that being the case, and it can be quite material in your returns. Like you look at Japan. And, and the performance, if you're a, a Japanese investor and, um, you know, despite the huge sell-off in the S&P, the currency appreciation against the yen resulted you being, I think it was positive last year. Um, and so currencies, when you're having these central banks, uh, big movements in rates, um, it's very important to understand. Yeah, for sure. Like if you're a U.S.-based investor, you, you never think about this. But for everyone else in the world, and everyone else in the world is very active in U.S. assets, there are two layers here. You can make money on the currency even if you lose money on the underlying uh, asset, like, like you mentioned, Martin. 
one of the interesting things that happened in Canada over the past few years is that Canada joined the QE bandwagon and is also joining the QT bandwagon. That, that was a bit different from, from the Fed, which, who has been doing this for, for some time. How is uh, the Bank of Canada's QE and QT program being perceived in the financial community there? I personally believe, if you look long, long term, that the Bank of Canada follows the Fed. Um, it, it has to. Um, it's just because our economies are so linked to each other with trade. And, and, and so you can have the luxury of not following the Fed when you have a strong resources, for example. And so you can have uh, a higher Canadian dollar um, when you have the, the higher energy uh, um, higher energy prices, for example. Um, and, and so I think that that's, there's more recently been a disconnect between uh, that relationship. And so what I mean by that is energy prices have been moving higher and the Canadian dollar has not uh, maintained its historical relationship. So it should be higher given where energy prices are at. And, and that's simply because there isn't a lot of projected capital going into the energy sector. So typically um, when you saw the last cycle, you saw, I mean, I, I, when I, I was on this for way of background, I was an energy analyst for 10 years on, on the sell side and our biggest uh, capital providers were China and, and U.S. And there was a vast amount of capital coming into the country. And so that was very supportive to the currency. And that's not happening today. Um, that capital is not going into the expansion. Um, it's just globally and, and domestically, there isn't an appetite for expanding a traditional hydrocarbon uh, expansion. So um, I, I think that that's why we're seeing a little bit of a disconnect. Uh, Martin, since you mentioned that, we've we got to get your view on energy. I mean, if you look at, so it depends on what index you look at. If you look at WTI, it seems like it's just kind of bouncing around for the past few months. And I think in Alberta, it's Western Canadian WCS, I guess. Yeah. So what, what do you think is, I mean, so heading into this year, you had a lot of people talking about, you know, supply problems with energy. And last year, you even had concerns about, um, you know, because of the geopolitical events in, in Russia that we might have not enough energy. Um, fast forward to today, it seems like recession calls are getting weaker. Uh, the economy seems to be strong, and yet energy doesn't seem to go anywhere. Do you have any thoughts on what might be um, what might be behind that? So I call uh, the energy trade the most hated trade out there. Um, it's almost like big tobacco, or it's becoming like that. Um, and and so. That in itself creates opportunities for those who want to invest in in in, in this in the segment itself, and you know, looking at it from a um, philosophical standpoint, we need uh, uh, those traditional uh, energy development in oil and gas to bridge the the gap towards renewables, which I'm totally supportive of. However, uh, that said, I, in my entire career, I have never seen such a precarious situation on on the supply demand imbalance. And people keep saying that we're at peak demand and demand keeps going up higher and higher. And, uh, and, 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 and at the same time, you're having this variability, as you just mentioned, Joseph, in pricing. And if you're an energy company and there's no capital coming in, there's no appetite for, from institutional pension plans, for example, who's divesting of assets, uh, there's no capital availability. Um, and you're having tremendous volatility in the underlying, I mean, you're a price taker. So, um, there's tremendous variability in, in that pricing. You're not going to put a lot of capital back into the ground 
Um, and that's not just in U.S. shale. That's also in, in other countries, uh, like big OPEC producers like Saudi Arabia, for example, who have been uh, over tapping into uh, the reserves and global inventories to meet the surge back in demand. And so those global inventories have been depleted. And even the SPR, we're back to March of 1985 levels. And, and that's when we're ramping up the SPR. And so you've got this potential uh, situation setting up for a big supply and demand imbalance. And I really hope, and, and, and weighing against that is the recessionary worries, which is actually good because the last thing I would want is to see energy prices super spiked to $150, even though I'd make a ton of money off of it in the short term. In the longer term, it, would, it could create some, some damage that, uh, or, or to, to you know, our battle against inflation and, uh, and other aspects. So we seem well supported where we are now for the past few months, but it doesn't seem to be doing the, the price of the, I guess, oil futures don't seem to be doing much. No. And, and there's a disconnect between the paper traders and, and the physical market and, uh, and and paper paper traders, which are a significant component of, of that market, um, are being a lot more bearish than 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 the actual physical market that's transpiring. And, and so if there's an event like in Russia, for example, um, that that would result in 500,000 or a million barrels coming off, um, that would be a, a, a catalyst to super spike some of these prices. And if there isn't uh, an economic, like we're not seeing the, if you look at, well, I mean, you follow this more than I do, but looking at PCE data, look at consumer spending in January was insane. Uh, traveling, um, People are still spending money and, and the economy is still strong and that's going to translate. I mean, we get into summer vacation and driving season. You have China reopening with flights and, and people being cooped up in China and they start doing the, the YOLO, you only live once. And, and they start doing what our baby boomers are doing in North America. Um, then, then you're going to get a surge in demand and the supply just isn't there to meet that demand. And so you could see what energy prices and oil prices in particular spike. Now I'm saying oil because uh, it's important to make the distinction between that and natural gas um, because natural gas is a, is a much different scenario right now uh, uh, from a supply demand fundamental standpoint. Um, Martin, isn't it the case that in China, uh, demand for jet fuel and um you know, other other refined products is actually only a small fraction of the demand for total oil, and and most of the oil de demand in China is from refineries to produce yep. refined products for, for exports. And uh, you know, I've I've heard that those refineries were were you know operating at, with very high throughputs all throughout the pandemic, even during zero COVID. And you know, there's this thesis. Uh, you probably have encountered that a reopening in China might not be as bullish for oil global oil demand as one, one might think. What do you what do you think about that? I think it's just a time delay. So you're not going to see it up. You're not like you just described. You're not going to see it in, in an immediate impact, right? Um, but the, the the longer it stays open, um, the greater the the situation plays out that they deplete uh, some of those uh, inventory bills from the, from the refinery runs. And it proves to be sustainable. You pair that with actually the, the biggest growth that we're seeing is out of India. Um, and India is really getting my attention. Um, I met with a, a fund manager who's looking at expanding an Indian fund 
here in Canada and in the U.S. Like India is really is, is I was there um, back in 2003 or four. I was really impressed with what was happening then. Um, and, and now it's it's just really taking off. So I think India could be potentially the, the new China. And, and what does that mean for demand? Tell me about natural gas because the price absolutely exploded uh, last year, but since then it's it's fallen precipitously from its highs. And you know, I'm just looking at American natural gas producers; they their stocks might be down forty or fifty percent from the highs when the actual commodity is down something like eighty or ninety percent. And a lot of these companies are not making money. I mean, they're actually losing money at the at the current prices. So, uh, you know, the B word is a dangerous word, but you know, might there be a bubble? in these natural gas only, not oil, but only natural gas companies that, um, you know, I mean, they're, the only way they make money is the price of natural gas goes higher, which is you know pretty wish, wishful thinking. Uh, just for context, guys, natural gas futures went as high as almost $10 a few months ago. Now it's like two and a half dollars. So like Jack mentioned, it, it really took a dive. Weather. Um, weather really played a huge part um, in Europe and in, and in the U.S., uh, we have we've had that now. I'm for, for listeners. I'm I'm an avid skier, and uh, and so I, I do follow the weather quite closely. And this has been one of the most challenging ski seasons um, that I can remember. Uh, the snowpack this weekend is probably the same as it was in November, December, and in some places places in in Europe. My son's a competitive skier. Uh, his his uh, colleagues or uh, teammates, sorry are saying that there's green patches in, in some of these ski hills. And so we've had a really warm uh, winter and that saved collectively saved Europe's bacon. And, uh, and, and, and it also did with the U S and, and so you, you had a situation where inventory and supply uh, was rapidly able to build out and because of that big drop in demand. Now um, who knows what the weather is going to look like next year. Or, or the year after. So I don't like investing based on weather. Um, it gets to be too difficult to, to look at. Now, um, are these not long-term gas prices sustainable? Probably not. Um, looking at, at, at where they'll normalize or mean revert, probably higher. And so energy uh, stock investors are, are always hedging their bets a little bit. So what I mean by that is, if you own an oil company, um, they're generating tremendous cash flow, and and so they, they were reflecting a fifty to sixty dollar U.S. a barrel oil price when the oil prices were a hundred dollars a barrel, and then so when you saw the oil price correct, um, these oil stocks didn't move down as much this year. So everybody was highlighting that gap and saying, well, oil prices are down, these oil stocks are not down as much. You should sell that, and. And I'm just saying, well, let's just back things up a little bit and look at five years instead of one year. And, and then you'll see that the gap really isn't that wide. Um, and, and, and so I think the same kind of situation is playing out for natural gas and natural gas producers, natural gas stocks. And I'm actually looking at natural gas stocks, um, even though you're right, they are some of them are losing money, but low cost producers um, are able to sustain themselves through this environment. And then they have huge torque upside when when natural gas prices recover. And so um, I'm, I'm not there yet, but I'm seeing some best in class um, up here in Canada. Yeah. Some best in class, and I, and I know the plays that they're that they're invested in. There's some best in class companies up here 
that are trading significantly lower than they were, uh, um, you know, six months ago. Right. And, uh, Martin, to what, when you said that, um, you know, there's still underinvestment in, in energy. And I feel like in the U S if you look at XLE, as you mentioned, uh, that, that index of large cap American oil producers has been rising and, you know, companies like Chevron, Hess, uh, ExxonMobil are, you know, they, they, they are pretty much close to their, if not all time highs, um, you know, their, their five year, five year highs. Um, However, it's a lot of the Canadian producers have, have sold off dramatically. Are you finding more value in the, the Canadian producers? And then uh, how would you assess just the quality of businesses of uh, Canadian oil producers versus uh, American ones? Like what, what are the differences and uh, to what degree are they positive or negative? Um, good, good question. And, and so we've had a lot of consolidation um, in Canada uh, among the producers. And so we have higher vacancy rates downtown Calgary than other places. It's like thirty percent vacancy rates, and uh, and 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 you know we've had a, a tower called the Nexon Tower that's, that's I think it's forty five floors is completely empty, and so um, the the tie into the Canadian producers is that we've consolidated, and so there isn't as much competition, and and there's a lot more control over pricing, and so their operating costs are are. Are quite low, so they can make money in a lower-priced environment for longer. And then uh, there isn't as much competition, so as a result, they can secure some very excellent position, world-class uh, plays um, in in the Western Canadian sedimentary basin that the U.S. producers have left, for example, and uh, and, and international players have left. And so they they help they'll have land dominance, a huge inventory to drill from and uh, ex excellent well economics. And so, and then you've got the currency. So these producers get paid in US dollars and their cost basis in Canadian dollars. And so if the Canadian dollar stays where it's at, so don't forget, we were at par before uh, with, with the currency, now we're not. And so these producers are getting paid in, in US dollars and their cost basis in Canadian dollars, which is lower. So they have even larger margins. So we're sticking close to home. Uh, we will pick away at, at a couple of international players for diversification, but um, for the most part, um, there's some some outstanding companies right here in my own backyard. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. Announcement. Blockworks is hosting an event called Permissionless in September. It's a crypto event. It's in Austin, Texas. We did Permissionless in 2022. It was the biggest and best DeFi event in the world. And this year, Lightning will be striking twice. Historically, our ticket prices have gone up about 10 times from the day the tickets go live to the day before the event. If you're like me and bad at math, that's 900%. So it might be savvy for attendees to consider buying tickets now rather than later. If you're listening to this and you're saying, hey, Jack, I'm not really into this whole crypto thing. I want to hear about the Fed. I want to hear about the dollar, Bretton Woods, three, four, five. I hear you. I'm not telling you to buy a ticket and the interview will resume momentarily. However, if you are into the crypto thing and permissionless is something you might want to attend, what I'm saying is there's no time like the present because tickets will go up and if history is any guide, prices will go up a ton. Anyway, the link is in the description and you can get an additional 10% off by using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. Martin, returning to the Bank of, of Canada, uh, how sensitive is the Canadian economy and Canadian financial assets, stocks, bonds, everything to you know rate hikes. There were a lot of, of folks in America who were saying, you know, there's no way the Federal Reserve can hike to three percent because the economy can't take it. 
but it pr- proves that the American economy has been, at least so far, much more resilient to, to rate hikes than, than many people expected. Is it somewhat different in Canada? You know, I know in Europe, there's a lot of variable rate mortgages where, you know, mortgage payments or, or rates go up with uh, with rates, mortgage rates go up with, with interest rates, whereas in the US, it's a, a fixed rate. What, what does the, the environment look like in Canada? Now, I had a really good conversation with Joseph about this, and I, and I really remember it quite well about uh, 30-year um, term mortgages and and and, and how um, the the sensitivity to rising rates isn't as as strong as it would be in Canada. Um, most people in Canada, we have a five-year. Uh, most people go three to five years terms, and and so there's a little bit of a of a of a lag there. Um, in regards to um, having the impact on on the uh, can, average Canadian, um, but we're, we'll probably get there sooner than a lot sooner than the U.S. Um, so because we're only one year into that, so if you give it another year of even maintaining rates, uh, that's going to have an impact. And so uh, we're seeing just from what we're witnessing, we're also our, our economy is a lot more sensitive to interest rates simply because we've gone all in on, on real estate. And there's a number of different reasons for that, but immigration is being one of them. We have uh, one of the loosest immigration policies internationally and, and, and from the existing government. And so uh, we're having half a million people come into the country and there isn't any housing for them, despite the landmass, because they're going into big cities like Toronto and Vancouver. And actually now in Alberta, we had 55,000 people come into the, into the province last year, and half of them were international, half were from other provinces. And so um, there isn't the supply of houses. And so people have been making a lot of money on, on speculating on real estate. Real estate is actually a significant component. I think it's 12% of our GDP um, uh, versus I think it's 7% or 6% U.S., and so we'll have more sensitivity there simply because of the shorter term and the greater um, impact on, on the economy. And so everybody, there's been a surge in housing now because of the Bank of Canada's latest statement. Everybody's thinking that we're going to see uh, a, a rate cut in the, in the second half of the year. And so it's time to go all back in into housing. Same thing about what the U.S. investors are doing on tech. The Fed pivot, Bank of Canada pivot. They're just playing it through real estate. I'll give some context of those numbers just for a little bit. So Canada is about the size of California, and they're getting about half a million immigrants uh, a year. The U.S. is obviously much, much bigger. The U.S. gets about a million legal immigrants a year. So, you know, the immigration rate in Canada is just huge, huge, huge. And and that can obviously put uh, upward pressure on housing. Mm. Thanks. So, so the Bank of Canada is uh, hiked to 4.5%, uh, you know, pretty much exactly in line with the Fed, whereas the Fed's 4.5 to 4.75. Um, and there's been rumors of a Bank of Canada pause. And once the rumors of the pause come in, that gives way to rumors of a cut coming in. So you know, what's the what's the vibe like in fi- uh, Canadian fi- financial markets about where the, the, the forward rates are, are going to go? And how, how does that affect sentiment and, and asset prices right now? And, and so the pervasive thought among consumers is is that rates are going to stay where they're at or fall back down again. And then you have had uh, a drop in housing prices in some of these cities like Toronto and Vancouver, like 25, 30%. Now, that was from the highs 
Um, don't forget, I mean, if you look at, if you back it up again, you expand your time horizon, uh, it's not that much of a drop compared it flat from where it was two years ago. So all of the excess from the COVID startup again has been gone. And so again, as Joseph had mentioned um, about investors in the U.S. going back to thinking that we're, we're, we're going to be back in 2020 terms with, with asset inflation, with tech stocks, it, the same kind of thought is here in Canada in the real estate market that we're going back. And so all we're, all I'm saying is just, you know, exercise a little bit of caution. Um, it, it, look at your sensitivity to interest rates and, and, and run the numbers so that if they stay where they're at, um, even if they hold, I mean, I don't, I don't think people are saying they're thinking they're going to hold. I think they're the pervasive thought is they're going to drop, but if rates stay at four and a half um, for 12 months, what does that mean? To your to your balance sheet and uh and and can you sustain that so for for i think a few years ago mortgage rates in canada are about one percent right so you have basically if you're if you have to renew your mortgage every four to five years that means basically 20 percent of the people are getting this huge interest rate hike from one percent mortgage and renewing it to um to four percent so that's a, that's a big jump in canada are mortgage interest deductible, tax deductible, like they are in the U.S.? No, they're not. Um, and but there's there's no capital gains tax on uh, on when you sell your home, and so uh, people have have made a ton of money on house flipping. Um, I, I mean, millions of dollars. Houses that you know five years ago were eight hundred thousand dollars. People are selling them for one and a half million dollars now, and so uh, there's. So, so, you know, there's that uh, against the uh, um, against the lack of deductibility of your mortgage. Mm. And Martin, what's your economic outlook uh, on Canada, but but also the the U.S.? I mean, do you think we are headed for a recession sometime in late 2023, sometime in 2024, or or not at all? Um, yeah, maybe start with Canada, and then and then perhaps go to the U.S. So um, it's important to start off by making the distinction that uh, a good a, a, an economy and the outlook for the economy doesn't necessarily mean the same kind of relationship in the stock market. Um, you can see some differences there. And, and so what I mean by that is I'm bearish on the Canadian economy uh, versus the U.S. economy. I think the U.S. economy is a much stronger economy than the Canadian economy. It's a much more diversified economy. It's an economy that is much more productive. If you look at the uh, at the productivity uh, level per uh, of, of labor in, in the U.S., uh, it, where it is in Canada, we need that 75 cent dollar to compete, um, and that hasn't changed. Um, we've gone all in on on a segment of the market that is a non-producing asset like real estate for a number of reasons that we just discussed. And so I'm not as as bullish on the Canadian economy as the U.S. economy. Having said that, I'm more bullish on Canadian equities uh, versus U.S. equities, again, for some of the reasons that, that we just discussed. And, and the TSX, for example, has a much higher weighting to energy, uh, double the weighting than the S&P does. Um, and, and so um, I like that. And, and don't forget, I'm, I'm not always, I'm not a, a perma energy bull. Uh, at, at one point in time, we had like two or 3% weighting in energy. 
And now we're up to 15 to 17% weighting to energy, which is quite significant for a, a diversified uh, fund manager. And, and so um, I, that's the way we're positioning. I, I think the Canadian economy is going to have, uh, uh, is, is going to react much quicker to rising rates than the U.S. will. And, and so that's going to slow things down here. Martin, earlier you referenced a big shift that you think we, we're only at the beginning of. What is that big shift and what does it mean for the investment world? So there are, I mean, you have to ask yourself when there's big structural shifts in, in, in the market um, and segments of the market and, and be willing to, to question that and, and, and be open to it. Because if you don't, um, it's going to be a world of trouble for you. So, for example, in, in 2014, uh, I was running an energy hedge fund. It was one of the top hedge funds in, in Canada for performance. Um, and then uh, the, the OPEC came in and aggressively targeted U.S. shale. And I said, this is a game changer. So uh, we closed down the fund and gave the money back to investors because it's, it's, it was just not a good place to invest in. And if you're running a long-only energy fund and you're not very bearish on energy, well, it's hard to tell people to sell energy when you know, you're trying to raise capital for your fund. And so that was a structural shift. And thank goodness we did that because it has been awful since then um, until more recently. Um, in 2008 was a structural shift. And then what happened following a quantitative easing? 2000 was a structural shift with uh, the, the Greenspan and rising rates and, and the bursting of, of technology. And I, I think that what we witnessed in March of 2020 was a huge structural shift. How can you say it wasn't? You had a shutdown of the global economy. And so now we have work from home. We had baby boomers that left the workplace. Um, I'm a, 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 a huge fan of Charles Goodhart and his book, The, the Great Demographic Reset, um, where you had, and Joseph has done some excellent work on this, uh, looking at, at the labor dynamics. So we had an oversupply of labor and, and that was putting, uh, uh, you didn't have a lot of price pressure to, to raise rate wages. And now you had baby boomers are like accelerated their retirement. Now they're gone. And, and so now you have two jobs for every person looking for a job available. Now they may not be the best jobs you're looking for, but there's still that kind of availability. And so that's going to put upward pressure on wages. And so there's all kinds of dynamics that are at play here that people are ignoring saying that we're going back the way it was before. Hmm. I agree completely. But one thing I thought was very interesting when I think about Canada and the U.S. is that if you if you listen to our Chair Powell talking about, they're, they're always talking about labor shortage, labor shortage. And there's the same shortage in Canada as well. Uh, but they're doing something very differently in Canada, like we just mentioned earlier. They're importing enormous amounts of immigrants. And that seems like it will likely have some big impacts on inflation going forward, since um, if you're importing so many people a year, you, you probably won't have the same level of wage inflation as, as the U.S., whereas the U.S. is not doing that. So there could be some potential for, for divergences in monetary policy going forward. And, and, and that's, yeah. Yeah, that, that's an excellent point. Um, I'm, I'm a proponent of, of immigration, and especially for a country the size of Canada, uh, we need to diversify our workforce. We need to bring some of the innovation that we're witnessing in, in, in other jurisdictions. But at the same time, we have to balance it against um, housing and the shortage of housing. These people people need to live somewhere. Um, we need to look at uh, their severe restrictions on their backgrounds. For, so, for example, uh, I, I was watching on the weekend. There's a young student from Canada 
who has to go to Scotland to, to get their medical uh, schooling. And they can't come back to Canada and practice medicine because we won't recognize uh, the education that they had over in Scotland. And so um, there's some challenges there. And then there's healthcare challenges because we run a, a public healthcare system. And, and, and so with a shortage of doctors and nurses and huge immigration, uh, that's taxing the healthcare system. So um, it, it, it is a really good policy, but you also have to have a, a plan around these other factors. And, 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 and so you have to have that, that balance. And, you know, in my opinion, the U.S. is not doing enough immigration and Canada is probably doing too much uh, from the services and, and supporting standpoint. And so how do you find that balance? We've got a great question. Someone asked on, on Twitter about this, about the linkage between employment, services demand, and uh, interest rates. They say, if the Fed is determined to slow the economy, it must raise unemployed. That, to, to do that, it seems we need to destroy demand. So they ask, how high do rates need to go before firms shed workers? So Joseph, my, my question for you is, uh, yeah, how, how high do rates need to go before the, the labor market dynamic begins to switch, or do you think that's an inappropriate question because you know the Federal Reserve has such a you know level the level of interest rates has very little effect on on labor demand and it's inflicted much more by the secular forces that that you reference. One of the secular f- forces that um, that we've been mentioning, of course, as, as Martin mentioned earlier, is that we have an aging workforce. So structurally speaking, the labor supply is either not growing or, or slightly shrinking as time depending on the country. Uh, I think monetary policy definitely has a big impact on the demand for labor. Let's just think about this for one minute. Let's say the Fed raises interest rates to 50%. There's not going to be as much labor demand. Okay, S&P is going to go to uh, you know 1,000 or something like that. So monetary policy definitely has an impact on that. Um, so whether or not the Fed, how high the Fed has to go to actually see declines in, in unemployment, I, I, I really don't know. And I think the, the question... I think what's clear right now is where we are doesn't seem to be high enough. And the reason I say that is because even though we're at almost 5%, we're having gangbuster growth, having gangbuster job growth, and the consumer seems fairly healthy and resilient. So uh, whatever that number is, it seems like where we're at now is not is not there yet for um, no, constraining. One thing, Joseph, I have a question for you, and it's really interesting, is... Um, and, and, and the two factors, one is um, I'm not sure why central bankers aren't maximizing the impact of their existing rate hikes. And you can see that in, in housing here in Canada, for example, the restart. Uh, consumer spending in January was just huge. And, uh, you know, I read that you have 10 months of, of spending if, if they continue at current levels, if they continue to plead existing uh, savings at the same pace. And so consumers think that they're going to see a rate, a rate drop. Um, and then the second aspect, too, I'd like to get your, your thoughts on. Nobody seems to be talking about it. And, um, and, and, and I look at um, fiscal and the impact that fiscal has. And to me, that was the catalyst for inflation was fiscal because we had a decade of monetary easing and we didn't see that kind of inflationary pressures. I mean, in addition to COVID, obviously, and the big impact there that it had on people leaving the workforce. But Fiscal spending, it hasn't been tightened as much as it should be. I mean, we're still running deficits while the uh, central bankers are trying to tighten. Um, why Why is it not pushed back against that? Or is it people not saying that fiscal does not have a, re- a relationship with inflation? Uh, 
I think discussions on Fisco, in, in my experience, what I hear on Twitter, at least, is that you're not giving enough free money to people. <laughs> so in, in the U.S., for example, um, I, I recently saw a tweet by a governor of, of uh, the state of New York saying that, you know, we should index minimum wage to, to inflation. And that's yeah. obviously, you know, well, it's not well, depending on. So that affects the private sector, but I'm sure it also affects the state sector, which has to pay above minimum wage as well. But you also have things like Social Security, where um, and because of index adjustments, everyone has 8% more money. So there, there's more fiscal spending. There's actually a really good uh, report from the Congressional Budget Office, which in the U.S. is one of the authorities that um, tries to estimate, based on current law and some estimate of where the interest rates will be in the future, what the fiscal deficit will be in the coming years. And Martin, I agree completely with you that a lot of the inflation is primarily driven by fiscal spending, specifically deficit spending. So the CBO's projection of the, let's say, at least 5% fiscal deficit for the U.S. is probably an underestimation because what I've noticed over the past few years is that there's a lot of discussion for the government spending more to do things like the energy transition, but nobody ever talks about, um, let's say, cutting benefits or cutting down spending. So the fiscal spending is definitely getting out of control here in the U.S., and that's definitely a source of inflation going forward. Um, what's the situation like in Canada? So I, many of our readers are U.S.-based, so we're not as familiar as the trajectory for the for the state of Canada. So in Canada, uh, household debt is like household debt. You look at total debt is uh, the worst in 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 the G7. It's worse than than Japan and China, and and it's actually worse than Greece. So the level of consumer debt in Canada is is quite high. And that's defended by the high asset prices in real estate um, and saying, well, it's okay. Our asset prices are high, but people tend to forget that when asset prices fall, your debt doesn't fall with it. <laughs> so, um, and, but, and then actually fiscally, uh, uh, the federal government uh, was not in as rough a shape, not nearly as rough a shape as a consumer household. Um, and, and then we had the Trudeau government come in and change that uh, quite rapidly the deficit spending was among the highest in the G7 um, as a percentage of GDP um, during the COVID shutdown. And, uh, and and so we're still running very, very large deficits. And so the only safe component of, of, the, of the country was the fiscal situation, and that's being rapidly deteriorated from the existing government. And so the same kind of thought is we need to protect the uh, the the average person from inflation by giving them money, and and and, and you know that's going to exasperate and make the situation even worse. And where it gets really interesting, Joseph, I'd like to ask you is, um, it maybe we get a playback of the '70s, for example, it finally puts pressure on these governments is debt servicing costs, and uh, and so the debt servicing costs in the U.S. Um, are are, are going to be quite large, and same in Canada. So our central banker is going to put pressure, um, sorry, our, our government's going to put pressure to Biden or Trudeau governments. Do you think they can put pressure on these central bankers to really, you know, stop the, the rate hikes? Because it has to put pressure on them to service those debts. I think, Martin, you bring up a very good point. One thing that's different today compared to the 70s is that the debt to GDP ratio is a lot higher. That means when the central banks hike interest rates, that has a much bigger effect 
on the deficit because the stock of debt is higher. So when you hike interest rates even a little bit, the interest expense goes up a lot. And as many people have pointed out, that's obviously not sustainable. Let's say, for example, in a few years, we have a debt to GDP of closer to 200%. When, when you do that, just small increases in the interest rate will increase interest expense significantly and thus make the deficit go even higher. I, I haven't heard anyone here in the government be concerned about that. I think what happened over the past few decades is that government spent so much and nothing happened. So there's there's not it's not in the uh, cultural zeitgeist to be concerned about things like this. And also at the end of the day, they could always have the Fed buy it. So there's there's never a, a problem with people not wanting to buy the debt. The constraint, of course, is inflation. So if you have huge amounts of debt, interest expense goes higher. Just have the Fed come in and buy it all, then then that you you are you are creating even stronger inflationary um, impulses. So. Right, and uh, Joseph. So in the wake of the Great Financial Crisis, the the U.S. ran what at the time seemed like large fiscal deficits, but they were actually cheap to run because interest rates were you know short term interest rates were at zero and long term interest rates were at you know two two and a half percent. So it was very manageable. Now that's getting a little bit less manageable. So you know, if this world we are in, let's say you know over the next decade, interest rates stay at say at five percent uh, or even higher, as, as some project. How can the can the federal uh, not the Federal Reserve can the, can the U.S. federal government afford that? Will it put pressure on the federal government to you know make budget cuts? Uh, what, what do you think happens? The U.S. government can always afford its debt. Full stop. Right. If you have a fiat currency system, you have a money printer, you can afford it. If you if you rewind back a hundred years ago when you're under the gold standard, yeah, you can run out of gold. You can definitely um, not afford it. But when you have a money printer, affordability is never a problem. The problem is always, if you keep doing this, do you create significant inflation and does that have political implications? So I, that, that's one of the reasons why I think significant inflation for the, for the next decade is very likely. The politics today is, some, is simply very inflationary. Um, if you think back to what happened during the 70s, Arthur Burns, who was Fed chair then, um, the story is that he let inflation go out of control. But Afterwards, after his tenure as Fed chair, he wrote a speech called The Anguish of Central Banking. And in it, he says that, you know, I could have stopped inflation anytime I wanted. I could have raised interest rates significantly, totally crashed the U.S. economy and brought inflation under control. But I didn't and I couldn't because the politics of the time was for the government to do all sorts of fiscal things to help the uh, the people who did not have a lot, a lot of money just basically to give money to everyone. And the Fed being part of the federal government, it has to be responsive to the wishes of the elected uh, of the elected representatives. And so that was the culture then. And it wasn't until the culture shifted when people got really sick of high inflation that we could have a conversation of maybe less fiscal spending and higher interest rates and endure the pain to get back to uh, a sm- less inflationary regime. And today, we I think we're very far from that culturally. So I, I don't I don't see anyone I don't hear anyone uh, mentioning physical restraint or anything like that. So um, in terms of the inflation cycle, I, I think we are probably towards the middle or early innings. Is, is there room to, like in Canada, there isn't um, to raise taxes. There's no room. Um, our, our marginal tax rates are, I mean, when you're over 50%, 
Um, in some provinces, you're looking at 55%, and then you have a provincial sales tax on top of that, and a GST, you're like 60, like, so the numbers are, are, are too large. So there isn't the ability to raise taxes in, in this country. What about the U.S.? Is that a potential avenue that the Biden administration will go down? So, so yeah. I think uh, the Biden administration has has pledged pledged to not hike, uh, not increase taxes on anyone making I think four hundred fifty thousand dollars or less. So above that threshold, I think maybe th- there is room. And then also, I think uh, President Trump lowered corporate taxes from twenty eight percent to lower, like twenty one percent, twenty two percent, twenty percent. So maybe I don't know, Joseph. I, in in the U.S., it, it's really hard to change the tax code. You need uh, you need one party to have a tremendous like majority in in Congress, and that's that's not that's very difficult to do. So uh, I don't I, so I know the Biden administration obviously wants to raise taxes on the rich, which is everyone who is um, not them. But um, I, I, that's a hard thing to do, really, in, in the U.S. So um, well, in Canada, in, in Canada, you're classified as rich when you're over one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Um, like the, the tax, the marginal tax is much, the, the threshold is significantly lower. So the, you know, if you're running, this is why inflation can have a huge impact on the Canadian consumer, because, you know, you're, you're, if, if you're making a hundred grand and the average house, the single family house in Toronto is 1.2 million, um, in Vancouver, average single family house is 2 million. Um, I mean, how can you do that? And you're told that you're at the highest, you know, you're you're the wealthiest person in, in the country, 150,000. Well, you don't feel very wealthy when when your house is 10 times your income. You know, that, yeah, that brings up a good point. If we have inflation and everyone's wages continue to go higher, we'll eventually all creep into a higher racket. And that, in effect, raises taxes on everyone, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, eventually we'll all be the rich who gets taxed more. <laughs> Uh, right. Well, as we approach a close, Martin, I know you wanted to talk about structured notes, which in America are uh, quite rare unless you're an institutional investor and uh, you know a lot of people don't know about them. What is a structured note? What is the role of them in you know, non-US countries such as Canada? And then what is the appeal of them as well as the, the risk of them? And, and for the structured note, let's talk about you know those that are tied to interest rates as well as equity-linked notes. So, um, so- when, when we look at our portfolios, managing our portfolios, everything's a goals-based return. So it'll vary by individual, but most of our clients are probably targeting six to 7%. And so we want to minimize the risk level to get there. Um, obviously, inflation is going to you know, play a role in, in, in our returns and our goals and those sorts of things. But having said that, um, we want to look at investments that are going to be able to minimize the, the volatility, have some downside protection, and be able to generate a, a decent rate of return in this kind of uncertain market environment so that you don't have to make a bet on interest rates. And portfolio doesn't have to, isn't going to perform based on what a Fed's going to do, right? And it gives you a lot of a peace of mind. And so one of those investments, and it's actually um, in our balance fund, it's about 35% of the portfolio. Some newer clients, we can run up to 50% is in structured notes. And a stru- structured note is a derivative instrument, okay? Uh, we traded derivatives for about 10 years. We did uh, an option overlay on top of our portfolios. It became, uh, the taxation of, of derivatives is very different in Canada than the US, and it could be quite uh, cumbersome um, and, and involve redoing your taxes. And so um, from uh, that standpoint, uh, a structured note wraps it all into one 
investment product. Now, it's a it's an investment product, not unlike a bond. It's actually taxed as a bond in Canada, okay? And 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 it has uh, um, uh, the counterparty risk, which is can be significant if if you're not aware. And we've had there have been some problems in Europe with these notes. The Canadian banks are very safe, as we saw during the 08 situation. Um, the Canadian banks are very well capitalized, very conservative. Despite some of the lending concerns uh, and the housing market, they still have maintained their prudence. Uh, and, and we have a whole shadow banking market, which can be a whole different discussion. Um, that, that means that the Canadian banks are not exposed to, to the, the, the higher risk debt as they've offloaded that off their balance sheets. And so from a counterparty standpoint, um, if you're doing Bank of Montreal or National Bank, or Royal Bank, on the structured note, it's a contractual obligation. So you have to make sure that they fulfill that obligation. So that's a low risk. And so what we mean by that is um, you enter into that contractual obligation, be five years, three, five, seven year term on that note. The note will pay you a coupon payment uh, annually, monthly, quarterly, depending on an underlying index, or in some cases, if you want to do it towards interest rates. Um, we've been doing more of the equity component. So we took our fixed income down to 10%, replaced uh, on a 60-40, replaced 30% of our 60-40, 30% in total with structured notes, with coupon payments of 8 to 12%, as long as the, and I'll pay that out monthly, as long as the index doesn't fall more than 30 or 40%, and it's already down 10 or 15 or 20%, depending on which index you're looking at or what segments you're looking at. And so our clients are getting paid monthly an 8 to 12% annualized coupon as long as uh, the underlying index doesn't fall 30% and stay there for the entire term. And so, yeah, there's ups and downs, but we have a built-in downside put protection involved in, in, in the note. And the clients are getting that 8 to 12%. Taxes income, yes, um, but still um, well within their target returns. Wow, Martin, if you, if you look back at certain trades and analyze their timing, that seems like an excellent trade. You've gotten clients out of long duration U.S. Treasury, 20-year, 30-year Treasury instruments and replaced that fixed income exposure yeah. with you know, synthetic structured notes that yield a higher rate that don't have the duration risk. However, you know they, those notes do uh, uh, get in, enter trouble because they're basically paying off uh, there's short volatility that the the S and P 500 goes down 30 40 percent as you mentioned, and even though it was a bear market for the 60 40 portfolio, worst 60 40 portfolio year on record, I think, and it was bad for stocks and particularly individual stocks. Uh, the market, I think, the S and P 500 was only down at max like 25 percent. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So what is so I guess the only way the the the, the real uh, setback of that strategy, Martin, is if the S and P 500 crashes 30 or 40 percent. So how are you sort of weighing that risk? It's the type of thing that it happens so rarely, but when it does happen, uh, you know that things can go quite haywire. So you can do different types of notes, and so we do a monthly auto callable note. So what we mean by that is, let's say we did one, we could do one on the S and P in U.S. dollars that pays almost nine percent. It'll pay that monthly as long as the S&P doesn't fall more than 30% and stay there. So what we mean by that is, okay, let's say we did that note today and the S&P crashed 30%. And you have a, another 08 type of word, March of 2020. You may, it has to stay minus 30% for the entire five years um, for you and for you to not get those coupon payments, which is I don't think has ever happened. Has that ever happened before? Right? Stay so, for two years? No, but can it stay minus 30 for five years? Oh, 
yeah, uh, it that didn't happen during 2008. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty rare. Even going back, I don't think it ever has. But it is a there is a tail risk. But so it, if it goes down minus 29% in two months, you get your coupon payment. You keep getting your coupon payment. You keep getting your coupon payment until the end of the year five, if it makes makes it there, because they'll have a callable feature in six or 12 months. If they're 10% above the par price, they get called away. Um, at the end of year five, um, if it's down 25%, you would have got your coupon payments the entire five years at 9%, and you get all your money back. If it's down minus 31% at the end of five years, you lose 31%, but it would have been offset by all the 9% coupon payments, mm. much better than an equity position. Um, however, if the market comes roaring back and you have a, a 20% move in the S&P, that's where they'll underperform. They get called away. You'll maybe only get six months of coupon payments or 12 months of coupon payments at nine. So you're giving away all of that upside. And so, um, but most of our clients don't care. Um, we'll have an offsetting uh, 60% position long against that uh, with the 30% in, in those notes. So we'll get some of that upside participation. So, so for example, when uh, in the market rocketed in, in, in 20 uh, 21, uh, uh, we participated in 75% of the upside. And then in, in 2022, uh, we protected 90% of the downside. And so uh, clients like that. They don't, they like knowing that they look up their statement. And like I had a, a perfect example, I'll leave it with this is my mom called me and uh, she called me in at the end of Latin, December and, and I managed her portfolio. They sold all of their real estate and, and their renting. Um, for different reasons, they put that money into, uh, with me, I put it in structured notes. She called me crying. My mom is everything. Okay. She says, I didn't lose any money last year. I'm so happy. And I was a little worried about Christmas dinner and then now I don't have to worry about Christmas dinner. So, um, there's, there's huge value in having those kinds of conversations and, and, yes, and, and uh, needless to say, these are very complex products that, you know, if they should be entered, they should be entered either by a professional such as yourself, Martin, or in consultation with experts. You know, people who uh, are not working five times full-time should not enter into these things by themselves. 100%. Definitely not. Okay. Well, I have two uh, final questions that, uh, one one for each of you, but I just want to say, um, uh, you know, people can find, uh, Joseph, your work at fedguy.com. Your, your book, Central Banking 101, is a oh. must-read. And Joseph, also I have... have a- new online course on markets that I've had. You got a, you got a new online book. course so people yes. can check that out, Joseph. I've... I've You've seen met multiple people who said that they bought Central Banking 101, and uh, they've all they've all loved it, found it valuable as I have. Um, and you've, you're the chief investment side investment officer of Monetary Macro, which, which is exciting. Uh, Martin P- uh, Peltier, people can find your work at M Peltier uh, CIO on on Twitter, and um, your your work at uh, Wellington Altus Private Council. Uh, Martin, can you tell us a little bit about the fund you manage? Are you uh, are you do separately manage accounts? Are you launching a new fund? What, what's going on with with your, your work? So uh, we do run uh, SMAs uh, for family offices. So we only have sixty large family offices, uh, significant that we manage, um, and then we also run a uh, uh, OM offering memorandum uh, pool fund uh, for our. our our family office clients and those who want to join up with us, we've taken, we have a five-year track record on that, which is, is, is outstanding. And so we're looking at, at taking that to more of a public vehicle. So uh, hopefully uh, we'll get that going in the spring. So please uh, watch out for that. And uh, that'll be available to, uh, to uh, broader investors. 
Great. All right. My final question for you, Joseph, is right now, uh, according to the CME, uh, the market is pricing in a roughly quarter chance, a 25% chance that at the March FOMC meeting, the Federal Reserve hikes by 50 basis points instead of 25. So instead of hiking from 475 to 5, uh, they're going to hike from 475 to 525. How are you? Uh, what do you think about that? The fact that the market is getting has gotten that hawkish that quickly, and do you think that the the, the risk of this or the chance of this happening is greater than twenty five percent, or has the market got ahead of itself and it's actually you know less than twenty five percent, probably not going to happen? Yeah. So I, as I've been mentioning throughout the year, that it seems like the market was way too optimistic on inflation and way too dovish on what they perceived the Fed to be. So. I think that right now, finally, the market is becoming more in line with what the Fed's dot plots are. But about 50 basis points in the next meeting, I think that's very unlikely. So the Fed shifted down from 50 to 25. Um, if, they, if they thought that they needed more hikes, they could just add more hikes, more 25 basis point hikes later in the year. Um, I think shifting again from 25 to 50 is probably not necessary. And there, there's really no reason for that on an extra month or so it doesn't really doesn't really change too much so the fed does things very slowly and very carefully after signaling very clearly in their last uh, statement that they wanted to shift down to 25 um, it's very unlikely that they would just change that suddenly uh, more likely is that the dot plots for march will be higher than they were in december and during the fed conference Powell also guide towards that. So there'll be more hikes uh, projected, just uh, more 25 basis point hikes rather than just another 50, mm. in my view. Thank you, Joseph. I, I, I tend to agree with you. I think 50 is uh, unlikely, although you never know. Uh, Martin, my final question for you is, you know, I don't know enough about Canadian real estate to describe it uh, as a bubble. I have heard it be described as such, but your characterization of the real estate market in Canada it doesn't seem to, uh, you know, necessarily. Uh, it, it seems to be in, in parallel with you know, a market that that is in a, in a bubble. Maybe, uh, do you think it is in a bubble? Then, how do you navigate uh, investing client assets into real estate? You know, uh, as a, a holistic portfolio, real estate is you know, some percentage. Or do you advise clients to sort of, hey, maybe be a little bit careful here? Yeah, so I don't think um, the Canadian real estate market is in a bubble. There are periods of euphoria, segments of the market that's euphoric. I mean, I don't know if you guys have been in Vancouver, but it's a pretty awesome place, and everybody wants to live there. And Whistler's right there. I, I it, it's just, it's just a world class destination. And as long as the immigration continues, that'll provide support. Um, I always look at real estate as a non investment component of of your total wealth. And, and so what I mean by that is, you know, you find a place to live you, and if you can afford it and you can run your long-term mortgage rates at 5%, you can afford 5%, then, you know, maybe that's the new, uh, the new mean reversion. I don't know, but if you can afford five um, and it goes down to two or three, whatever, then you're that much ahead and you can pay down your mortgage faster. So, um, but from an asset class perspective, um, I look at the private real estate market. There's a lot of private real estate funds in Canada um, offering private mortgage investment corps, that sort of thing. I, I'm not a fan of them because um, there isn't the transparency that I'd like. And also, you don't get the price discovery. And so we had public REITs sell off 30% last year. And then you had the private NAVs of these, of these private mortgage investment corps with no change 
and they're being marketed as a low correlation asset class. Well, simply because you're not marked to marketing those assets. And so I was advising people, if you had a private mortgage fund, sell it at NAV and buy a public REIT at a 30%. And owning some real estate portfolio is not necessarily a bad thing, especially when it's down 30% um, or 20%. Now they've come back again. U.S. home builders in the U.S. have done phenomenal, but um, that's the way I look at it, real estate. Thanks, Martin. Uh, you know that advice seems wise, and uh, as you know, in the U.S., it is no different. Public real estate investment trusts are down thirty to forty percent, and the privates have not been marked down at all. Uh, we'll leave it there, gentlemen. Thank you so much, and thank you everyone for watching. Thank you, Jack. Thank you, Joseph. Thanks, guys. Forward guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at Blockworks Macro, or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and Blockworks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.